Once upon a time, in a faraway land, I woke up and realized, I am going to be a dentist. Said like no one ever. These are the real stories, not fairy tales. As we go behind the smiles, this is a podcast where we interview and chat with some of the biggest leaders in dentistry, learn their stories, and share their motivation with your host, Dr. Gina Dorfman. This is a special two-part episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Yappy, an automated paperless software for dentists and their teams. Learn more at yappyapp.com. I was I was working with a client on what's called a deposition the other day. So this is this is where uh, a suspect is being interviewed by a lawyer, and she must have said twenty times in this deposition, which went on for about probably forty five or fifty minutes. She must have said twenty times, "I swear to God." <laughs> and after she said that, whatever came out of her her mouth next was going to be a big whopping lie. Honest people don't have to swear to God. They just tell you. So that's a, that's another behavioral marker. Very true. Um, these, if, if somebody's stealing, they will have a strong resistance to somebody like a consultant coming into the practice or a software trainer because um, they typically are pretty comfortable with their ability to fool the doctor. But somebody who comes into the practice who's not under the spell of the embezzler who thinks about dentistry as a business as opposed to a healing art um, poses a lot of danger to them. So they'll try to talk the doctor out of hiring these people. No, you know, we have all the expertise you need in house. You don't, you don't need to lay out all that money for a consultant. Um, that's a, that's a pretty common characteristic. Uh, some more subtle ones. A lot of embezzlers will resist upgrading practice management software. You know, so you have EagleSoft 18 and version 19 comes out and they will tell the doctor, no, don't, you know, don't, don't get that. What we have works fine. And of course, what they're scared of is that there's been some change between 18 and 19 that kind of locks them out of the methodology that's working for them now. Um, and most of the time, people don't really know what's in an upgrade until it's installed. I mean, maybe some of the some of the main features will come out, but you don't know kind of what's happened to the back end of the software. Right. So they'll be a little bit threatened by the possibility of upgrade, and they'll tell the doctor something like, "Well, you know, if you actually if you if you upgrade to version 19, you're going to have to buy some new hardware, and you know, we really don't need it, or something like that." Interesting. And, and, you know, we see a lot of reservations just, you know, being a technology company and working with a lot of practices, we see a lot of reservation um, from team members about upgrades. And, you know, I'm sure most of the time it's, it's something like uh, just the fear of the, you know, of, of having to learn the new software. No one likes to do that. Uh, but there might be something else along the lines. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Absolutely. And, and, and you're right. I mean, every, every human has some level of resistance to change. Um, with the embezzlers, it tends to be stronger. And they will come up with reasons that sometimes bear very little relationship to reality for why the doctor shouldn't upgrade. So let me ask you a question. If we suspect as a dentist that we're being embezzled, um, or if we don't suspect, but we see something, and here's the interesting thing, and I, you know, I told you I'm in a lot of Facebook groups, uh, dental Facebook groups and dental forums, and sometimes I, 
um, there was one question that I saw the other day where um, a female dentist said something like, you know, I caught um, my office manager misappropriating $100 or $130 in cash. And actually, I did notice there was something similar that happened eight months ago. And so now I don't know, should I fire her? Should I not fire her? And there I am screaming at the top of my lungs on Facebook, you know, contact, uh, you know, um, a fraud examiner immediately. Don't do anything. Don't set off any alarms. Don't print any reports. Don't fire her. Just just get the investigator in there first. Um, and she's like, well, I don't think that she's in bed. I think that she. <laughs> and so I, I, I don't know what the reservation is, but uh, if this happens, what should we do as dentists, whether we suspect it or we just see some activity that doesn't sit well with us. Um, you nailed it. The, the cardinal sin is to let the suspect know that they're a suspect. Um, you know, if somebody is stealing money and they think they're about to be caught, what their mental picture is, is I'm about to go to jail. A lot of embezzlers are stealing for reasons of ego and they sort of, you know, they, they uh, feel like they belong in a certain part of the community and how that part of the community feels about them is going to change. And, you know, this is all absolutely horrible for them and they will do almost anything for that not to happen. And uh, the only problem with that is that turning you into collateral damage is, is a price they're quite prepared to pay. Um, I had a conversation years ago with somebody who suspected embezzlement and we talked for about 15 minutes. And at the end of that conversation, they decided, I'll just look into this myself rather than pay you a fee. And I don't know what they did next, but they, they tipped off the embezzler. And her response was to come back that night with a can of gasoline and burn down the practice. Oh, God. Um, and believe it or not, there are actually worse stories than that. Um, that's just one I know about personally. But there, there have actually been more than one person who's been murdered over embezzlement. Wow, that's um, crazy. Yeah, it is, it is absolutely crazy. So if you suspect embezzlement, you have to realize the seriousness of the issue. And this is more than, you know, $100 in cash get going missing. Uh, you've got somebody who probably has done a lot more than what you've happened to stumble across. And they know that if they get caught, the, the consequences will be severe. Um, and it's just like, you know, if you're hiking in the woods, what they say to you is if you see a wild animal, don't ever make it feel like it's cornered because that's when it's going to attack you. And, you know, if you're talking about a bear, don't threaten its cubs. People make that mistake and they, you know, they will go to the person at the front desk and ask them for a whole bunch of reports they've never asked for before. And then they'll go in their private office and close the door and phone their CPA. And... If I'm stealing from you, I'm looking at you every morning and saying, does Dr. Gina know? And the moment that the answer to that question I ask myself is yes, I start thinking about drastic stuff. You know, if I wiped out the computer hard drive and destroyed the backups, uh, yeah. you know, how is she, how is she going to prove it? So stealth is really important when you get to the point where you suspect. And, and I didn't really come here to talk about how we work, but one thing I can tell you about my company is that my team go to tremendous lengths 
to ensure that our work is carried out stealthily. In other words, that there's no possibility that the the, the people being investigated have any idea that, that they're being looked at. Uh, that's, that's excellent. That's really important. That is very important. Um, and you know something you've mentioned earlier, and actually that specific example that I gave um, kind of struck me the most about that specific example is when, when she did question, the dentist did question that employee about that missing cash. The employee said something like, how dare you accuse me? I've been your most loyal. I've been yeah. this and I've been that. And it almost made me feel that a lot of times they might feel entitled to, to that money that, that, you know, you're a rich dentist, you're making all this and I'm, I am collecting it for you. I'm making it happen. I'm keeping your appointment book uh, full and, and I work harder than anyone else. And, and I, I feel like there's part of that, um, mentality there where it's I don't even feel bad about taking it because it you know you're not even paying me enough yeah exactly and we talk about two types of thieves being needy and greedy thieves and needy thieves are stealing out of financial necessity you know there's something happening in their life that means that they're you know they can't sort of balance the family books and they're stealing because they need to buy groceries and then you have greedy thieves and they're stealing for ego. As you say, they, they think they are far more valuable to your practice of success than probably you do. Um, the other thing, and I, I'm, I'm sure you've observed this, Gina, you know, most, most staff grossly est- overestimate how much money you take home. True. Um, so you put those two together and, you know, in the eyes of, somebody who, again, thinks that they're the whole linchpin of your financial success, and they think that you take home a million dollars a year and they get paid 60000 uh, to them, that just seems all very unfair. And they forget some stuff. I mean, they forget the amount of debt you walked out of dental school with, you know, before you bought the practice and all the financial risks you took and all those things. I mean, none of that factors into the equation. To them, it just all seems really unfair. Now, you know, you might actually be making $220,000 before you serve as your dad and 150 after, but their, their evaluation of your numbers is, is typically very skewed. And as I say, they think they're worth way more to the practice than, than you do. And you're right. They're stealing to take what they think you should be giving them anyway. Um, wh- one other thing I'll talk about too, that a lot of people get wrong about this problem. When I, raise this topic initially with dentists, what tends to be in their mind is the theft of cash. And I'll be very clear on this. Thieves love to steal cash. It is is absolutely their favorite thing to steal. But it's also self-limiting. You know, most practices take in a relatively small amount of cash and it's it's decreasing over time. I mean, that's a a long-term trend. Um, And of course, a thief knows that they can't steal all the cash. So if, if the only thing you were going to steal is cash, most thieves would find that their opportunity was less than what they really want to take. So in 2019, we see far more other types of payments stolen. And it is not that hard to cash a check with somebody else's name on it. It is not that hard to steal a credit card payment. And it is childishly easy to redirect an ACH payment, an automated payment that goes into the bank account. 
So that's where most of the stealing is happening now. And I think probably one of the one of the conceptual errors that that person made when they were posting was that their whole focus was on looking at missing cash and not not a a little broader look at their practice. That makes great sense. And and I'm glad you brought this up because I think, um, you know, and I've seen, again, conversations about it online where doctors say, well, you know, um, how could the possibly take a check that's in someone else's name? And and we do know that this is something that's happening. I'm I'm not going to discuss that here, but I can tell you that it's something we see virtually every day. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's definitely worth for dentists to be aware of that. I, I want to redirect the conversation a little bit because um, I, I think, I guess, one of the ways we could potentially deter uh, an embezzlement in our practices is by doing background checks. But the problem is, and we talked about this earlier, is that a lot of embezzlement is not caught or it's not reported and it's not prosecuted. So that's what I want to talk about. First of all, I... I'm trying to understand the reason why a dentist may choose not to um, report or investigate. And, and also, I want to understand the, um, the likelihood of an embezzler being prosecuted successfully and what needs to happen for, for that to happen. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll start with, with the comment about background checks. Um, dentists, in general, are terrible at screening their employees before they hire them. True. Um, and I think there are a couple of contributing factors. First of all, I think they over- overestimate their ability to judge character. Secondly, a lot of hiring is done in a bit of a panic. <laughs> true. Um, that is so true. You know, and if, if your assistant tells you today that she's not coming in on Monday, um, it's, it's very difficult to do uh, two-handed dentistry when you're used to doing four-handed dentistry. And so you have this immediate problem and, um, you know, stuff that's going to slow you down, like checking to see if they have a criminal record, just doesn't seem like a good idea. By the way, your audience should know that 65 million Americans have criminal records. So that's one in four adults. Wow. Um, And while I'm on my soapbox, I'll say it absolutely astounds me that the majority of dental practices do not do drug testing before they hire people. So I cannot get a job for UPS or FedEx delivering the junk that people buy on Amazon without a drug test. And yet I can work in virtually any dental practice in the U.S. without one. The difference being that Amazon doesn't have a prescription pad sitting 10 feet away from me. There's a big problem with the way that people are screened before they're hired. Um, I'll say a couple of things about this. First of all, every dentist understands the concept of a short notice list for patients. Why don't we have one for staff? (laughs) That's a great point. So you mentioned you have about 30 staff in your practice, okay? Which means you're going to have turnover multiple times a year. Right. You know, you, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're the easiest person in the world to work for, but even so, you know, you probably have five or six staff members who leave you every year. That's about correct, yeah. Um, so why are we waiting until they leave to start the process? You know, you're out at a restaurant tomorrow night and your server gives you really great service and anticipates your needs instead of having to be asked. Um, why not hand that person a business card and say, you're fabulous at what you do. 
Um, and if, if you never wanted to leave, I'd understand. But, you know, if you ever wanted daytime hours and maybe a little less time on your feet, I'd love to talk to you and become a collector of people instead of starting cold at the point when somebody gives you that notice that you find woefully inadequate and you, you try to fill their spot. Um, and again, it's, it's panic hiring. That's a huge contributing factor to not doing the proper screening. Um, sometimes people, when they say background check really mean criminal records check to me, background check is a lot broader and would include, for example, drug testing. And the big one, the absolute big one is speaking with former employers. It amazes me the number of people who get hired, um, having stolen from somebody else. And I asked their, their first victim, you know, did you ever get a call from the, 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 the second dentist who hired this person? And the first victim will say no. Um, so a couple of things there. First of all, when we do a reference check, we need to find the phone numbers independently. In other words, if I'm interviewing a, an applicant and they say they work for Dr. Gina Dorfman, and here's the phone number, don't call that number. It's an excellent point. Go to Google, find your number independently and call that one. Otherwise, I may end up talking to um, you know, the applicant's aunt who's on a disposable cell phone, who gives a glowing reference. And of course, I, I, I never get to talk to you where the outcome might be different. That's a, that's an excellent point. And you know something, I actually, periodically, I um, look at resumes to see uh, if anyone is, is uh, listing my name on a resume, uh, particularly because I'm sometimes curious if anyone on my present team is, you know, has updated a resume. And, uh, and I once came across a resume where I thought, wait a second, that person never worked for me. Never worked for you. And and I and I thought, well, I have a lot of employees. So I actually went into my software to see if there was anyone by that name. And it's not just the last name is different. Everything was different. That person yeah. never worked for me. And they listed like several years of employment with me. And I bet you if they put a phone number down, it wasn't any phone number that you used. It wasn't. It was um, the address was the same, but the phone number was not. Yeah, because nobody's going to actually show up at your address. No prospective employer is going to show up at your address to ask the questions. Um, you raised another good point, though. Um, one of the ways to head off a, an, an unsatisfactory conversation with somebody who just fired you is when you apply to pretend you still have the job and to say to the person you're applying to, please don't call my current boss because she doesn't know I'm leaving. So you fire somebody three weeks ago and now they're applying at my practice. That's an excellent point. Uh, so the way to get around that is what, what I should, when I, when I hear that from an applicant, what I should say to the applicant is, I understand, you know, the last thing I'd want to do is jeopardize your status with your current employer until you're absolutely sure that you're coming with me. Um, but I'm going to tell you that we don't hire anybody without speaking with their most recent employer, but it doesn't have to be right now. In other words, I can, I can postpone that till the very end of the process, if you like. What I'm doing here, Gina, is really differential diagnosis. If this person is playing me, what I've just told them is, you're not going to get hired with me until I speak with Dr. Dorfman. And they know that if that happens, uh, based on what you're going to say, that, that they won't get hired. So they're just going to go and find somebody else. On the other hand, if they are still working for you and they just don't want to you know, they don't want you to know they're looking until they're, they're ready to make the move, then I've created a safe environment for that to happen. That's an excellent point. Um, so that's the, that's the other 
important step in in checking with former employers. What about this? The employers who do not report. I mean, what what is what, what do you think is the reason why why people don't report? Well, sometimes they're compromised. For example, if I am a dentist and I'm having an extramarital affair with somebody in my practice, and either they're stealing from me or somebody else is stealing from me but knows about the affair. My hands are tied. I mean, I, you know, if I, if I report this, my marriage ends. And I probably have a lot more to lose than the thief. Um, uh, another scenario is if I am cutting corners. So I'm writing off copays or I'm, you know, doing bleaching but billing it as something else. And, Or, you know, I'm just taking money that comes in in cash and putting it in my pocket, not telling the IRS. You know, if a, if a staff member knows about any of those things, then they're holding a get-out-of-jail-free card. And I'm going to very quickly decide that playing chicken with them is not what I want to do. So they'll walk. Um, there are others who feel stupid or embarrassed about this. And, you know, just don't want people to read in the news that... Uh, You know, Dr. Smith's practice was embezzled for $180,000. So they let people walk. Um, there are some who thinks that this will take a lot of their time and energy for not a lot of benefit. And, um, you know, they just, they just decide it's way more trouble than it's worth. Um, I, I think those are probably the three most common scenarios as to why people walk away. The other thing that people don't understand, that dentists don't understand, is how slowly the wheels of justice grind. Uh, I was talking to somebody this morning who has pretty much caught somebody red-handed in their practice. And she said, I'm trying to decide if I should call the police and have this person taken away in handcuffs. And I had to say to her, that's not exactly what's going to happen. Um, from the police perspective, this crime is very different than most crime they deal with. With most crime, what was stolen is pretty simple. And the complicated part is who stole it. So if you wake up tomorrow morning and the car that was parked in your driveway is gone, okay, what was stolen is, is simple. I mean, you, you have a, you know, you have a 4,000 pound automobile with a serial number and it'll get found sooner or later, probably. Right. The challenging part is who took it. Embezzlement is the opposite. Who took it is never very complicated. I mean, if we look at your practice, which is a big practice, let's let's say embezzlement happened. I mean, you and I could probably narrow it down to four or five suspects really fast. Right. And from those four or five down to one with a little bit of work. Right. The complex part is what was stolen. And that's well beyond the ability of the police to determine. I mean, they need somebody like us who will come in and analyze and, and put in the, the, the time and have the, the dental knowledge to do that and then give them a report. Right. I, I mean, I somehow cannot uh, imagine detectives coming in and digging in Eaglesoft and, and running reports and really even understanding the types of transactions that no. occurred. So what would your, how would your company facilitate this or, or a company like yours? We work a little differently than some, and we're, we're the biggest in this, in this world. And we, 
um, I'd like to think have the most capability and first of all, to handle the, the, the broadest range of dental situations, but also we have some amazingly capable people, for example, in our IT department. So we, we do a couple of things that, that might be different from others. For example, when you call us, one of the first things we do is we copy your practice management software. Um, and just to, to make it a little less awkward, what do you use in your practice? What's your software? Dentrix. Dentrix. Okay, perfect. So, so what we would do in your case is we start by making a clone of your Dentrix. And that does a couple of things for us. The first thing is it lets us carry out our work secretly. If we kept connecting into your actual Dentrix or, heaven forbid, put somebody physically in your practice, and, you know, we, it's hard to keep that secret. Right. Uh, you know, it's kind of like when you come in your living room and there's an elephant standing there. Um, the second thing for us is that it's much easier for us to work with data that's not changing while we're working on it. So our investigation will typically unfold over a number of weeks. And if we were looking at your live software, stuff keeps changing through that time. You know, patients come in, they make payments, insurance checks come in. Right. From our from our perspective, when we're trying to look backward at what happened, that's contamination. The copy that we make of your Dentrix, on the other hand, is frozen in time. It will It will never change again. And that's a much better environment for us. So we start there. And that, then, that makes sense. It makes absolute sense from some, you know what I understand about software, which I expect is is considerable. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's we we need to create a platform where we can work secretly, and also where our work is not going to be disturbed by the normal operation of your practice. So we start there, um, and and our IT department kind of makes all that happen. Um, you know, then we have some investigators who specialize in Dentrix and some who specialize in Inglesoft and a group who do orthodontic investigation only. Um, one thing that, that people are, are always a little bit surprised when I, when I tell them is that a third of our investigators roughly used to be dentists. Um, we, we make use of a, of a fair number of dentist investigators. Everybody who works here has a dental background. You know, we have people who used to be office managers, software trainers, consultants, uh, one, one hygienist who took a wrong turn along the way somewhere. Um, we, we have people with a lot of different backgrounds, but they're all dental. And, and that's our heritage and what we understand. Um, so you have an expert looking at your stuff. It's done in secret. And, uh, we're very familiar with the way that, the way that most embezzlers steal. And, and those are the things that we look at. And so when the, Crime is eventually reported to the police. My understanding is because you're a certified fraud examiner, that information is that the information that you provide becomes evidence. Is that correct? That's right. In 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 most cases, uh, our report is their primary evidence. Sometimes the police will do a couple of extra steps uh, that that we're not able to do for various reasons. For example, we have no power to. Um, to, to gain the contents of, of an embezzler's bank account. Whereas police can go to the district attorney and get what's called a subpoena. And then, you know, that, that compels the bank to give that information. So uh, that's, a, that's a step that we can't take that they can't. Um, one thing, though, that a lot of our clients do when they have our report in hand is they're actually able to skip over the police and go right to the district attorney. And that makes the process happen a lot more quickly. Um, if, if police investigation is not needed, there's, there's no particular reason to involve them. 
And, Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, going going to the DA tends tends to make the process a lot quicker. The other issue that police have is resources. Uh, every police department has a budget. They have a certain number of people, and they have to allocate their investigative resources between violent crime and things like this. And I, I'm probably not surprising anybody in the audience when I say that, in general, violent crime gets the priority. Right. Uh, and and economic crime, especially to somebody who the public perception is is a little bit overpaid anyway, um, tends not to be the priority. Let me ask you a question. If this uh, crime is prosecuted successfully, is there any recourse, um, you know, to recoup your money? Is there, uh, is it something that's been collected from, does insurance help? Like, you know, what do we need to know in case it ever happens? Um, Potentially there are three sources of recovery. And the first one is insurance. That's the easiest. It's kind of the the low hanging fruit. Uh, The typical insurance coverage that a practice has is $25,000. And I think I mentioned already the average theft is more than 100000 So one of the pointers for your audience is to uh, find out how much insurance coverage they have and decide whether it's enough. And it's usually pretty cheap to increase the coverage from like $25,000 that, that they're starting with to $75,000. And I'd highly encourage that. But normally what happens is we send a copy of our report to the insurance company. They seldom ask us many questions because we're pretty methodical and you get that check fairly quickly. Uh, When somebody gets prosecuted, one of the things in in a fraud case that almost invariably happens is that the judge gives them what's called a restitution order. So they are ordered to pay you back. Now, obviously the judge can order that, but the judge can't wave a magic wand and make the money appear to do it. So the way that it works is this. If somebody has assets at the time of the restitution order, the judge can order them seized. You know, if they have equity in their house, if they have a 401k, um, those assets can be seized and turned over to you. And after that, what they're doing is paying you on a monthly basis. It's slow. I I was looking at a case the other day where we found embezzlement of about 115,000 and it's being paid back at the rate of $220 per month. Wow. It's going to be a long time, but seeing the glass half full, at least the victim is getting something. And, right. and, the, and the good news about the, the criminal justice system doing this is it doesn't cost you anything. I mean, this is just kind of a byproduct of, of prosecution, which is paid for by the government. So you don't have to hire an attorney to have somebody prosecuted. The, the state does that for you. That's excellent. Um, the other thing about restitution orders is, and this is important, they survive bankruptcy. I did not so know that either. If you have stolen from me and I'm suing you civilly, first of all, I'm paying my attorney. And secondly, if I win and you declare bankruptcy, then it's, it's called a judgment. The judgment is wiped out. Uh, also, if I win, I can't seize retirement savings like your 401k. There's a law that says that uh, those, those things are not seizable by a creditor. But when a judge gives a restitution order, those rules don't apply. It survives bankruptcy, and you can seize retirement savings. So we're, we, you know, we have people who want to sue their thief, and I typically say, you know, unless it's an unusual case, don't bother. We'll, we'll just let the criminal justice system 
do its work. The only problem with the criminal justice system is it is glacially slow. Right. And it will, it will take years from, if you fired somebody today, it's probably three years before any of that really happens. And, and you know, I guess it does make sense. There, the, there's a lot involved, but it's better three years than nothing at all. Um, quick question for you. If, Let's say if there's no investigator hired, is there any way to then recoup from the insurance company uh, at that point? Or the insurance company would require some kind of a concrete report and um, uh, data from a, from a frauds examiner? Um, insurance companies are really, really, really skeptical when somebody self-reports a loss. Um, and the, the best way I can put it Gina, is this, I, one guy who was an insurance adjuster said to me, you know what, every time a car is stolen, um, what we're expecting to hear next is, yeah, and my Rolex was in the glove box, you know, and this person can't produce a Rolex, you know, they don't have a receipt for the Rolex, they can't show where it was ever serviced, um, they probably don't strike me as the kind of person who would own a Rolex, but yeah, the Rolex was in the glove box and now it's gone. Um, what the insurance companies know about people like us is we don't care. We, we don't work on some kind of contingency. You know, what we charge is always independent of what we find. So from our perspective, you know, we have, we have no reason to overstate somebody's loss. And yeah, the insurance companies work a lot more easily with data that they know is first of all, objective and, Secondly, done by somebody who's who's competent in that business than when you come to your own conclusion about what you lost. Uh, well, thank you for all of this information. Now, you told me earlier that you were going to make a special offer to our listeners, and I was really excited about it. So would you mind sharing it with us? I'd be happy to share. Um, we talked earlier about behavior being the key and that most embezzlers will exhibit behavior that's congruent with stealing. The problem from the perspective of a dentist is, how do I know that? How do I know what behavior is consistent with embezzling? And how do I evaluate how somebody's acting? So we have a tool. And the tool is called an embezzlement risk assessment questionnaire. It's a 40-question questionnaire that people take online. Uh, they're all yes or no questions. So it, I would say at the very outside, it will take somebody 15 minutes to complete. Um, this is something we sell on our website. We normally sell it for $139, but what I agreed with Gina was that I would make it available to the audience for a limited time at no charge whatsoever. That's very so, generous. Un until June 30th of this year, which is 2019, um, you can take our questionnaire at no cost. Uh, what I will do is I will I will provide a link uh, that will be in the show notes and if, if you're in the audience and you want to take a look at your staff, um, try the questionnaire. The way it works, it, it, it's scored kind of like golf in the sense that a high score is not something you're really uh, pleased with. <laughs> um, so you take the questionnaire and about uh, five minutes later, you get an email back with your score. Um, if your score is high, a little alarm bell will ring here and we'll certainly reach out to you. And, you know, if, if you're interested in uh, working with us, you'll have the chance. 
Thank you so much. That's a generous offer. And, um, and I hope that our listeners will be able to take advantage of it. And I hope they, that they all come back with low scores, but, um, statistically they won't. (laughs) So it would be not, it's one of those things that you definitely want to know where you rank and then, you know, have the opportunity to, uh, speak to a professional person to see where they can, um, improve from there and, uh, and whether anything needs to be done. So again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for information. It was a lot of uh, fun talking to you and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Gina. Pleasure. And, uh, anytime I'll do it again. Thanks for listening to Behind the Smiles. This podcast episode was brought to you by Yappy. Not only does Yappy automate the busy work, it helps you get back to what's most important, taking care of your patients. So take a demo today at yappyapp.com.